Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Freedom International live stream. Roy Colan and I, Grace Asagra, would like to welcome you and welcome Vanessa Billy, and because she's going to bring us a lot of uh, unfold a lot of lies that maybe you're still not convinced are lies, and of course unfold a lot of truth of what's going on especially in the different wars that's been happening. Vanessa Billy, thank you for coming. No, thank you for inviting me, Grace. Vanessa Billy is an independent journalist and photographer, and she has worked extensively in the Middle East on the ground in Syria, Egypt, Iraq, and Palestine, while also covering conflict in Yemen since 2015. And uh, um, in 2017, Vanessa was a finalist in the prestigious Martha Gellorn Prize for Journalism, which was won by the much acclaimed Robert Perry that year. And in 2018, Vanessa was named one of the 238 most respected journalists in the UK by the British National Council for the Training of Journalists. In 2019, Vanessa was among recipients of the Serena Shame Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism. So Vanessa contributes regularly to Mint Press News, Russia Today, UK Column, which I love, The Last <sighs> Vagabond, and many other independent media outlets. So um, there's that her, you know, the Substack. So please follow her, support her. And she does also have a Patreon account and that you could, but mostly, you know, she'll be in the Substack. And you know how difficult it is now for a person like her with such credibility into really covering truth that it will be difficult. But when for us, who likes to seek the truth, you'll be patient when you look for information or want to follow her, okay? Things like that could happen. Thank you, Vanessa, again. Thank you. <laughs> no, I was going to say, don't do a Wikipedia search or a Google search. <laughs> that's a very bad idea. <laughs> that's, that's right. That will be the last, last thing. Okay. And, and when you're reading it, sometimes I, it's really my last source, but when I look at it, I try not to encrypt that information you said no especially wikipedia i think my wikipedia page and that of eva bartlett is is just a, a total um hit list basically okay so and so vanessa i guess most people who seek to have your presence you know, just like Roy and I and among their other colleagues of us who weren't able to join you today, but I'm sure they'll be listening to you, if not now, in the future, is that we're really just getting more confused or tired. And sometimes we just really don't know, you know, what's going on with wars. But of course, for us who are not there right you know it's been you, you, what's happening in, in in uk and or ukraine and then of course you living in syria so we're not directly affected indirectly we feel all the the difficulty from especially with the inflation and we don't also want to endorse listening to cnn or bbc 
be, definitely we're not very good in, anymore in listening to governments because we don't want to take their words as gospel. So help us understand first if I'm, I'm glad you already said don't be looking in Wikipedia. <laughs> no, so help us understand first when during this time, what would be good sources other than yourself? Well, I mean, of course, I can recommend people, but I think what is really important is, number one, as a rule, don't believe a word that the colonial mainstream media is telling you. I think that's a very good start. Question literally everything they say, because mainstream media has really become nothing more than a protection of power and an extension of intelligence and security agencies. So what it effectively does is to gatekeep narratives, to control narratives, to manage narratives in order to protect the agendas of uh, the ruling class and, and the kind of billionaire complex that is effectively generating and running these wars um, from behind the ostensible power base. So that would be my number one, is, is like throw mainstream media out of the window. Because in all honesty, I've spent a hard 10 years discovering that nothing they say is true. Everything is slanted. Everything is incredibly biased. Everything is um, disinformation and dishonest. And I think if you start, as I said, from that premise, then, then at least you understand that what you're reading is always going to be colored. And you need to find out what the context is and what the reality is. Now, there are now many independent media sites, many independent journalists. I would recommend always trying to find journalists that are actually on the ground. And of course, I would recommend Eva Bartlett, my dear friend and colleague that I've known since 2012. We met actually at the Rafa border um, when we were both trying to enter Gaza in 2012, um, and she's currently on the ground uh, in Donbass. Yesterday, she was in Mariupol. So as regards Ukraine, uh, she's sort of one of the best that I would recommend. Of course, there are others. There's Patrick Lancaster, there's Graham Phillips, uh, George Eliasson, who is a fantastic American investigative journalist who's been living in Ukraine since before 2014. So he was there from the, the, the Washington coup engineered by Victoria Newland, of course, and the Odessa and Mariupol massacres at the time by the Azov uh, and Aydar and assorted Nazi battalions to then the eight years of really ethnic cleansing of the eastern regions of Ukraine by those same extremist ultra-nationalist brigades. And he's now currently in the Donbass area. And he really has a very unique view on the history of the conflict, who is behind the conflict, who's managing the conflict from point of view of, of sort of cyber warfare, information warfare, etc. 
So, you know, those are the, some of the names that I would recommend immediately. Then you have Brian Balletic, the new Atlas on YouTube, who does almost daily YouTube reports on not only on Ukraine, but on China and Taiwan and so on. Uh, you have Andrei Martyanov, who's a former, I, I think he's former Russian military, now living in America, who again does at least four or five reports a week on the military situation, but also on the on the culture of Russia, on the ideology of Russia, because I think this is something that's deliberately being not mentioned in any, let's say, mainstream discourse about what's going on. We're not getting to hear about Russian culture, Russian heritage, Russian history, just as we... For 10 years, nobody in, in mainstream, in the think tanks, in the media, in the governments, in the government agencies, in the UN, nobody heard about the history of Syria and how the CIA and the MI6 have effectively interfered in this country since its independence from French mandate in 1946. It hasn't stopped. This war is only the culmination of 75 years of CIA interference in Syria. Sorry, that was a long answer to you. No, 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 it's perfect. In fact, what I was thinking and for the audience is, see, we have so many options to really listen to or follow and search on. So we're not, it's like, you know, sometimes we say like, as if we're hopeless, we can find the right information, but now there are all the names and I would be patiently looking for them and Please, Vanessa, don't be surprised if I ask you to introduce no, us. No, no. I mean, look, what I wanted to really say also is to find people that you really trust and, and who resonate with you. It might not be me. It might not be either. It might be somebody entirely different. But find someone that for you consistently provides a view that makes sense to you, right? I just, don't believe... I'm just curious, actually, yeah. just sorry for interjecting. No, 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 no worries. Uh, like, what do you think a controlled opposition? Because just from my looking at stuff, there's a lot of people that have massive followings. They get mentioned in all the mainstream media. People think that they're kind of on our side, but they're constantly dropping the bomb <laughs> to start your thinking to change it. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, uh, COINTELPRO... Um, controlled opposition of course it exists but I think I've gone through my own evolution about this and I think one of the reasons that controlled opposition was created in the first place is to create this environment of distrust like even I'll give you an example all of these events are deeply polarizing you're either with us against us right whether it's Syria, whether it's Ukraine and Russia, whether it's China. Now, China, you have this deeply polarized element where you have people that are deeply, deeply and emotionally in love with China, right? Almost China can do no wrong. So for them, and, and I'm not disagreeing with them in, from many aspects, but I do disagree with them in certain elements, particularly in China's attitude towards Yemen, where effectively they are partnering Saudi Arabia. They're supplying drones to Saudi Arabia to massacre Yemenis. They're literally looting Yemeni oil 
through deals with the Saudi Arabian coalition, and that includes Israel, and they are paying below market price for this. So they're benefiting from a war against really one of the resistance axis countries. So I, I want to raise this question. I want to understand in depth why China is doing this. Is there a higher motive for this? But I can't get beyond I'm controlled opposition because I'm questioning <laughs> one aspect of China's policy. Do you see what I mean? So my, my issue now is they've introduced controlled opposition. They've infiltrated independent media. Yes. But I don't want to fall into the trap of as soon as somebody disagrees with me, they're controlled opposition. Right. So it, it's a it's a fine line to walk. People have the right to disagree. And I think if we're not careful, we end up degrading discourse, which is what they want. And it becomes this gladiatorial debating cesspit where, where nobody can actually move the debate forward. And of course, that's what mainstream media does. Right. Like on the, on the Syria issue, it's black or white. You're either an Assadist or you're with Al-Qaeda, there's kind of nothing in between. And, and so they, you don't ever get an opportunity to discuss the nuance, to get beyond that kind of withers or against is element. So yes, controlled opposition exists. What I tend to say now is, I, I used to be much more purist. Now I tend to say, okay, take what you think is right, build on that, but question what you don't feel sure about. And as I said, gradually over time, you develop a radar for people who are genuinely finding their way through a subject, or they are genuinely, or, or they are trying to mislead you. Right. And, and that's what like they with mean. The wars. Sorry, Grace, continue. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm just gonna with the terms, and that's that's what you mentioned also about the weaponization of terms, right? Just mm. can you speak on those weaponization of terms that uh, is being also used in uh, infiltration? Uh, what you mean as as labeling people as like, addicts or right and conspiracy theorists and all the rest of it? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, basically, let's take the Syria conflict. When I think about it, the smears that were thrown at myself or at Eva or at anyone who was effectively defending Syrian sovereignty and the self-determination of the Syrian people, although the West will always claim, of course, that that's what they're doing, we would be labeled as a sadist. But my question would be, when you, there are 23 million or at least 17 million Assadists in Syria, so actually I'm fine with being that. I live in this country. I've lived here for three years, so I don't have an issue. If somebody wants to call me an Assadist, I'm in very good company because a huge majority of the population are Assadists, okay? But then you'll be called a Kremlin agent. Then you'll be called uh, a conspiracy theorist, alt-right, fascist, neo-Nazi, far-left, um, anti-Semite. All of these terms have been created to discredit. Now, for example, we're moving into the age of the information terrorist. If you 
challenge the mainstream narrative, if you challenge the dominant narrative, you become an information terrorist. And you're liable to sanctions, you're liable to prosecution. I mean, you know, we only have to look at Julian Assange, but also Graham Phillips, sanctioned by the British government for reporting from Donbass without any legal process whatsoever. So the weaponization of these terms and, you know, all of the fact check complex, all of the disinformation complex that has now arisen is to fight back against independent media. On the one hand, they will describe us as obscure bloggers. On the other hand, they will uh, dedicate huge resources to shutting us up. So which one is it? You know, but yeah, these terms are weaponized to 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 discredit. And that's why I said, don't read Wikipedia. <laughs> so both Grace and myself, we were kicked off YouTube. I've been kicked off Linktree. And I just saw from one off program Linktree, that you... really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On what basis? <laughs> I said, they said I went against their uh, guidelines. And when I wrote to them what, they couldn't tell me anything. And they had changed their guidelines about five days previous. So I had about three different, uh, for each podcast, I had a uh, link three and they removed uh, two oh or three God. of them. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Nice to know. <laughs> yeah. So I saw from your thing, because I didn't notice, it yeah. was just doing research, that Rumble is blocked in France. Rumble is blocked in France, yes. Now, where did I see that? Was that on my Telegram channel? Yeah, it was uh, yeah. something you were talking about. Yeah, but I'm just it just yeah. shows that, you know, we think we kind of can get them. It's bad enough. I mean, I've been shadow banned. Obviously, you've been shadow banned and all the different things that, you know, getting striked from YouTube removed and all that. But when they remove a whole social media from a country, it just shows how powerful they are and they can do what they want when they can actually see a bit of momentum going against the, the government. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they removed all Russian media from the internet sphere, you know, and, and even, um, you know, Yemeni media, media was wiped off the air, Syrian media was wiped off the air. Yeah, they're incredibly powerful because if they don't control the, the method of, of kind of sending the programs to your computer or to anyway, if like Nile sat and so on, if they don't control that, apparatus then their proxies do whether it's saudi arabia the gulf states Qatar, etc so all of them can pull the plug at any time and as i said you know to be able to to literally wipe russian media from the internet sphere in a matter of days was was extraordinary yeah they're very powerful and and you know they know that we're vulnerable we're all dependent upon um, their payment facilities, their their websites, their platforms, and so on. And as much as we can move around, I guess they can strike at any minute. Now everyone is being sort of diverted to Telegram, for example. Um, and I just looked at a at a King's College London survey on conspiracy theories, and they show that those who accept conspiracy theories. The percentage now is very low on, for example, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, because of the mass censorship, but it's very strong on Telegram. So as much as I'd like to see that as a positive, what I actually see is they're kind of corralling us into, into different areas where we're going to be able to sit and talk about certain subjects, but in a controlled environment. 
I mean, like they, they tell us that both WhatsApp and that is encrypted. And I know for a fact that WhatsApp no, isn't. So I don't <laughs> think that is either. I'm convinced they own both. They're watching everything. They know what is going on. And we just get yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a, you know, I sort of have another philosophy now where I don't really care anymore. You know, I mean, probably like yourself, I was detained in Heathrow for six hours as a Russian agent and under the Terrorism Act, I had to go through six hours of questioning. They took everything off my phone. But after the first five minutes where I asked them, well, why are you arresting me? Why aren't you arresting the guys in Parliament and the guys in Westminster because they're the ones sponsoring terrorism in Syria? I calmed down and I actually had a pretty good chat with them. You know, I, I'm, I've gone past the point where I care if people can watch what I'm doing because I'm not doing anything that I need to hide from anyone. Everything's in the public domain. <laughs> I think that's an important point because a lot of people, yeah. they live in fear. And once yeah. you get rid of fear and you just kind yeah. of accept it as it is, but you do the right thing, you know, yeah. you know, within you're doing the right thing, then yeah. you kind of spread the ripple out. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. That's very important, you know people still put a little plaster over their Google camera and all the rest of it. And provided I'm not doing something I really don't want them to see, then I don't care, you know? And I mean, it's the same here, you know? I mean, Syria is, it's still at war. People are very cautious. I'm British. I'm living literally in a country that is at war. People are suspicious, particularly if they don't know my work, but it's fine for me. You know, I don't censor what I'm saying. I don't censor what I'm doing. Because, like you said, I'm I'm at peace inside. And, and, and that's the important thing. As long as you have that, all of this peripheral interference doesn't actually really matter. Yeah, and I think it helps with the psych as well, because you probably noticed yourself with even probably other journalists, they kind of let it get in. And they go into a yeah. state of depression. We've seen that with even fellow podcasters that with the research, yeah. it really got to them. And I think you have to kind of be become bulletproof and look at things <laughs> from both sides. It's hard. I mean, sometimes, you you know, when you do spend too long walking around inside the brain of a psychopath, it's it's hard. You, I, it's, it's almost you feel like you need a shower after it, right? And, and by that, I mean a mental, spiritual, emotional shower like go and walk the dogs go and do some gardening do anything which just switches you off from the darkness that exists right and and again that's something which i learned i had to learn like before i go to sleep i just watch some crappy thing on on the, the tablet whatever it is just to get my brain out of you know this kind of thinking it's important. No, definitely. I, I like to listen to comedians just to yeah. <laughs> you know, lift the spirits. Yeah. So I assume you've got people and, and your own knowledge as well about kind of Ukraine and Russia. So I personally, I had interviewed. Oh, uh, Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Um, <laughs> I interviewed somebody that had their house bombed and they moved to a friend's house here, the mother with four kids uh, from the Ukraine. Then I've got another guy that I know who was basically American, moved to Holland, and he went on the border, basically 
helping the refugees. And one of um, Hartman's friend was on the show as well, whose wife is from Crimea. And like everyone has a different story, you know, and it's like I, I'm just trying to, you know, show it as it is. You know, you have some people that I know personally that were saying about um, one of the places, Lviv, saying how bad it was, the airport. And the guy that's on the border was saying he was there and it was like a holiday resort. They were taking pictures and everything. And plus, I've seen a lot of the photographs done from the Ukrainian side that are weren't the war. They were previous wars or from something else or else they were CG, you know, green screen and stuff like that. So there's so much trickery that the person on the ground looking, obviously, if they're listening to CNN, BBC, they're not getting the right information. But for me personally, what I've seen is both sides are actually getting hurt through when there's military involved because they kind of use their power to an advantage. And it seems like there's a lot of abuse happening on both sides. <sighs> War is always very confusing. I mean, they talk about the fog of war, but it, it is a thing. But I think the difference is here. I mean, you mentioned abuses on both sides. The same thing has been said about Syria, and I would deeply disagree. Because how I tend to look at it is who is the aggressor and who is the defender. And in this case, from 2014, when the West effectively funded and, and and by the West, I also include Israel in that. Israel was heavily involved in the 2014 government overthrow in Ukraine. And if you look at the methods used were, were, were almost, you know, their textbook, snipers on the roofs picking off from both sides to inflame the situation, exactly what happened in Syria. Then, of course, you had the absolutely awful Odessa and Mariupol massacres, which were carried out by the then empowered as of Nazi battalions. But even going back to why the Nazis were there in the first place, of course, if you go back to the Second World War, and if you watch Ukraine on Fire by Oliver Stone, then you'll understand that the US and the UK and the EU protected Nazis post-Second World War. And in fact, within Ukraine, particularly in Western Ukraine, they were given sanctuary by the West and incubated by the West. So people talk about neo-Nazis, but for me, they're not neo. They, they were here from 1945, on pre-1945 onwards. If you even go back to the 1920s in Ukraine, where you had um, the president of the Ukrainian um, Republic, Simon Petlura, who himself had carried out programs against Jews, for example, but also against communists. You can't disentangle the persecution of Jews from the persecution of communists. Even the Nazi, the, Nazi, the German Nazis, the persecution of communists came before the persecution of, of Jews, right? And in the 1920s, Simon Petlura, who was then president of the Ukrainian Republic, established a relationship with Jacob Jabotinsky, who was one of the early founders of Zionism um, and responsible in reality for the now, the price tag 
killings or his ideology is what led to the price tag killings now in the occupied territories by the um, Israeli settlers. Yabotinsky and Petlura basically had a deal. Yabotinsky would be able to develop his own military, his own militia, his own police forces on the basis that if they were to fight the combined threat of Russia, they would join forces. So he, because people always say, Zelensky is a Jew, how can he possibly be allying himself with the Nazis in Ukraine? But this goes back many, many, many decades because dis disconnect the religion and look at the ultra-nationalist aspect of Zionism and it couples perfectly with the ultra-nationalist aspect of Nazism when faced with a communist threat. Right. So fast forward to 2014 and you had the regime change. You had the massacres in Odessa and Mariupol. And you then had effectively the start of the ethnic cleansing of the eastern Russian speaking districts um, of Ukraine, the Donbass. And for eight years, the missiles rained down on Donetsk and Lugansk in particular, but also in other areas of the Donbass. More than 14,000 people killed. Many more, of course, uh, driven out of the area, some into Russia, some elsewhere. No electricity, no water, pollution of water supplies. Everything, actually, that, that the Western proxies did in Syria to the Syrian people that were resisting the invasion and occupation. Even other nationality nationals living in Western Ukraine were being persecuted if they didn't agree with the ethnic cleansing of the East. So I have Bulgarian friends, Romanian friends who told me that if, they, if, if their family members disagreed with what was going on in Donbass, they could also be detained and, and tortured and persecuted and executed and disappeared. Zelensky himself has been carrying out, you know, a, a cleansing program of opposition, of opposition media, particularly the Communist Party. The Russian language has been um, effectively almost um, um, made illegal. Even the practice of Orthodox Christianity has been oppressed in Western Ukraine. So this has been going on for years. And in 2014, they had a referendum and they voted for sovereignty, but it wasn't accepted. Putin basically said, you know, in a sense, he, he said, no, like, I, I don't want to get involved. They wanted him to come in as he has done now, and he didn't. Crimea voted to succeed to Russia. I mean, Eva has been to Crimea on, on at least two occasions. And particularly, I think, I can't remember if she went during the referendum or she went afterwards. But, you know, whereas the West will, will describe it as an invasion of Crimea, an annexation of Crimea, the reality is that through the referendum, people chose to succeed to back to Russia, back to Russia. And 
the refugees that I spoke to when I went fairly recently to observe the referendum, I spoke to them inside Russia and also, sorry, the people from Donbass and Lugansk, inside uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, inside Donbass. The majority of them said to me, no, this shouldn't have happened in 2014. We should never have become part of Ukraine in 1991. So that's the strength of feeling among the people in Donbass, the huge majority of the people of Donbass. Russia then made the decision in February of the special military operation because it had intelligence that NATO proxies were going to invade Donbass, which then would have been a bloodbath, and it would then also have meant that NATO, Nazi military, would have been on the border with Russia. And to understand what this means to Russia, we have to go back in history again. We have to go back to the millions of Russians that died during the Great War and understand what Nazism means for them. Right. So in answer to your question, if there are abuses on both sides, I have experienced Russian military here for seven years. And I have never, ever seen them commit an abuse, even against prisoners of war. And by prisoners of war, I'm talking about terrorists. Right. What I have seen are endless images from Telegram and from elsewhere of the Azov and Ida battalions torturing, castrating, gutting Russian prisoners of war, mass abuses. And I, we have reams of testimony of the detainment, of the torture, of the rape of people from Donbass, both during 2014 and after. Are there abuses in war? Of course. You know, of course, if Russia is bombing infrastructure, for example, in Kiev, are there going to be casualties? Yes, of course there are going to be casualties. If the Azov battalion is installing its missile launchers and its artillery next to schools or next to apartment buildings. Yes, there's going to be damage. There's going, there are going to be casualties. Same thing happened here in Syria. The terrorists occupied hospitals. They occupied schools. The eye hospital, for example, in Aleppo was converted into a Sharia court and put torture and detainment centers for various terrorist groups that kind of changed power over time. So I'm not saying that no abuses have happened, but I think, I think it's weighted far more in the court of the Azov and Idar battalions. And, I, and I'm not including the Ukrainian armed forces in this because the majority of them have actually, right from the beginning, been more prone to surrendering, for example, right? Because... I think for them, because the Ukrainians are fighting Ukrainians, we shouldn't forget this either. You know, this, and, and who, is, who is accelerating this? Who is fueling this? Who is sustaining this? Who is refusing to negotiate? Who didn't honor the Minsk agreements? You know? Just, just finally, before I pass you on to Hartland, mm. 
because I, I, I know that the Iraqis and Syrians, the refugee camps, and I know they're terrible, and nobody hears anything mm -hmm. about the atrocities going on. I have friends that have been to refugee camps. I've heard of some people that are born into them and they're there for all their life. They're terrible. But what happened with Poland? Whether the people coming, there was genuine cases, and then there was cases, mm. obviously not. But they were kind of accepting them into their houses and kind of bringing them into the community, which is a different form of kind of like it should never happen. We know that, they, you know, the American and all the other countries, they should never invade it. It's all orchestrated. But it's the people on the ground that are getting hurt. Mm. But just curious, because mm. obviously you've witnessed the refugee camps as well and seen it, how it can actually be done in a, a way more humane way. Actually, the most humane reception of refugees that I saw was in Russia. Because I've seen, as you mentioned, you know, I've seen how refugees in Europe are treated, especially if they come from uh, African countries, um, from Libya, from Somalia, from Afghanistan, from Syria. I went to some of the most awful refugee holding stations uh, on Lesbos Island in Greece. They were like concentration camps. I mean, it was awful. Built to hold 2,000 people was holding 5,000. And there was organized child trafficking, organized child prostitution, organized uh, drug trafficking. Everything was going on in that center under you know, control of the Greek government and the Greek authorities. No one could enter it. You couldn't even get inside it to see what the conditions were like. You could only speak to refugees when they were allowed out for coffee or tea at certain times in the day. But when I went to Russia and I saw the reception centers for the refugees, many of which came from Mariupol, they were treated with dignity. They were accepted into Russian society. They were The, the labor laws were dropped for them so they could basically work from the minute they arrived they were given the opportunity to Russian citizenship immediately. Like everything was fast-tracked for them. They were given money. They were given three meals a day cooked for them on site. Every single center that I went to was, was basically run the same way. And, and really, I was shocked. Not families living on top of one another. Like there was one um, children's summer camp. So each family had its own little log cabin in the woods. I mean, actually, I wouldn't complain about that. You know, it, it, it was a wonderful environment for them. Um, psychological therapy was given to them as soon as they arrived, trauma therapy for the children. I mean, they were so well taken care of. Here, I think it was two months ago, there was a boat went down near Awad Island, which is off the Mediterranean coast of Syria, near Latakia. I can't now remember, it was more than 100 refugees drowned in that because a big storm came up. And, you know, these, who, it's like you said, it's about the people. Who benefits from the refugee situation? Well, the West does because they can weaponize it to, to further criminalize the governments that, that, that they are attacking which is then driving the people out of the country. But instead of that being reported by the Western media, of course, they just say, well, it's Assad driving his own people out of the country. So it's weaponized to justify further military intervention, either directly or by proxy, right? But the life of the refugee is irrelevant to the West. It's irrelevant. 
it's just another weapon in their hands against whoever the target enemy state is. You know, it's like talking about human rights in Iran. It's like talking about women's rights in Iran. It's ridiculous. They don't care about women's rights or human rights. Otherwise, they would lift sanctions. People here in Syria have nothing. They have galloping inflation. Sanctions ensure that they have nothing. They have very little food. They can't afford the majority of it. They have no fuel. They have no electricity. They have no heating in the winter. Why? Because the U.S. is occupying one-third of Syria, which includes its oil resources. You know, the human rights and all of these labels that they put on to, to, to kind of give us a stakeholding in their latest intervention are complete, it's complete hypocrisy. They don't care about women's rights in Iran. They never cared about it in Afghanistan. <laughs> Sorry, I keep going off into No, 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 listen, that's fantastic <laughs> what you've just said. <laughs> I don't want to hug the stage, so thank you very much, Vanessa, and I'll pass you on to Hartmut. Hi. <laughs> Hello, Vanessa. My warm regards from Germany. And, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being here on the show. And I really appreciate what you're doing because I know Syria, let's say it this way, although the people don't have many things, they are very educated. They have, uh, let's mm. say, con also concerning the values, very high values. And mm. I think it was, um, yeah, it was a mess what has happening in this country. And um, especially every time it's all about money and economy because it was only yeah. it was only uh, the pipeline from qatar which shall be pro uh, constructed through syria and to turkey mm -hmm. and uh, as uh, assad is very close to russia mm -hmm. and uh, they discussed the situation maybe they wanted to t take the uh, L, uh, the gas from iran the war has uh, was established because the western world wanted to get the Qatar LNG to Europe so that they become independent from Russia. Mm -hmm. And um, can you can you tell us a little bit more about the economic history of the of the war in Syria? Actually, um, the war in Syria, in my opinion, goes back way further. As I said at the beginning of um, our conversation, um, if you look at the years from 1946, when Syria achieved independence from French mandate, um, it was hard fought for because France certainly didn't want to let it go. And Britain, of course, has always wanted to have the influence um, in all the Middle East, but in Syria in particular. And basically, from 1946 onwards, there have been a series of MI6 and CIA regime change destabilization projects, um, mil covert military operations inside Syria to destabilize Syria's relationship with Russia, or then the Soviet Union, now um, Russia. Now, why is this so important to them? Because Syria, effectively, is the gateway to Eurasia. It's pivotal. It, it's the center it's the hub of the wheel, right, from which everything radiates. You mentioned the oil pipeline, which is absolutely correct. And again, 
that was because in 2009, yes, Bashar al-Assad um, maintained his loyalty to Russia. But as I said, this loyalty to the Soviet Union and to Russia goes back decades. Not forgetting that Russia has had its military based in, in Haimamim on the coast of uh, Tartus for the last 60 years. And of course, that is now um, expanding. But Syria was central to the Belt and Road Initiative. You also had Assad's uh, Five Seas project that was ongoing just before 2011. And another point to make, if, if people want to go and try and find negative press about President Assad before 2009, they won't find it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because if you look at the emails between Bush and Blair post 9-11, what were they talking about? They were talking about a different relationship with Syria. So they were trying to effectively court Syria and bring Syria into the Western complex into the Western cartel. But of course, they failed. They failed over Hezbollah. They failed over Palestine. They failed over Russia. And they failed over Iran. Because those are the four points that, that Assad would never relinquish, ever. Right? Yeah. And so this entire war has been really incubating since probably 2003, the New Middle East and the Israeli clean break strategy, which I think was 2001. I could be wrong on that. But even before that, I've, I've written an, a fairly long article on the 75 years of regime change war in Syria. Hafez al-Assad, there were at least two uprisings weaponizing the Muslim Brotherhood to overthrow the Hafez al-Assad regime, right? So in a sense, what happened in 2011 is only a repeat of what had happened previously in the late 70s and before that. Both of them failed, of course. And of course, the West will portray it that Hafez al-Assad massacred um, Sunni Muslims in Hamar, etc. Um, but what, of course, again, they forget is the context that the Muslim Brotherhood carried out assassinations, suicide bombings, uh, they went to the Aleppo Cadet School, for example, lined up the Alawite cadets for execution, and the Sunni cadets joined the Alawites. They said, no, if you're going to kill them, you kill us also, and they did. None um, of this context is, is ever involved in any discussion on Syria. That's what we were talking about in the beginning. I have a question. Have you mm -hmm. found... Um in your research, have you found a link between the Muslim Brotherhood and Guantanamo? No, I haven't looked for it particularly. Okay. I mean, other than um, in, in what sense? Oh, the situation Guantanamo is um, is a let's say it's a camp where mm. people yeah. where they put a lot of Muslim people in, mm -hmm. and and they get tortured in this place yeah yeah sure no I and know. the interesting thing about torturing is that if they can this the torture has the target to split the soul hmm. one time is on the one case the uh, soul decided to die or the other way is the soul decided to split and then mm -hmm. they can program it and uh, for example this uh, many people for example in libya who are now in a regime, mm -hmm. they come from this area. 
Mm. And I thought there would be a link, but if you if you cannot find the link, then uh, then I'm sorry. This was my... <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying it's not possible. It's just not an an avenue that I've gone down. But I'll certainly um, look at it because, of course, Al Qaeda. You know, the thing is, since they incubated Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, and and Brzezinski admitted this post 1979, yes. right? then effectively, for me, there is no big difference between Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Ar-Sham and, and all of these Jabhat Shamir and Jaish al-Islam. It's like a mafia operation, right? Yeah. So it, it's like you have dons and you have hoods and, and they change hoods and they change allegiance and they, they come together and collaborate to, to achieve more power and more territory and more finance, you know, better drug running opportunities, better child trafficking opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, they are all the creation of the West. Yeah. Right. And and how I sort of, how I look at what's going on now and, and coming back to this idea of abuses, if I actually look at what's going on, here in Syria, you have the evolution of the eastern tip of extremism. So you have Al-Qaeda, you have the Uyghurs, you have uh, the Turkestanis, you have the Chechen extremists, you have the Afghani extremists, etc. All of them are here, Saudi, Wahhabi, right? In Ukraine, you have the western tip of the extremist sphere, sphere which is... Nazism. Yes. But Nazism. It's the same It's the same yeah. fascism. It's not. Yeah. It's, it only it's has exactly a different, the same. Um, yeah. yeah. And they all commit the same abuses. They all have, if you take Wahhabism, if you take Ikhwan, Muslim Brotherhood, if you take Nazism, if you take Zionism, they are all elitist, racist apartheid, sectarian, vicious, savage, extremist, fanatic, right? Yes. And all of them have their roots in or are um, sponsored by or are protected, but they're a protectorate of the West. Yes. Right. And so again coming back to to this idea of abuse when you're fighting this conglomeration of pure evil and i can say that hand on heart because i've seen what they do here in syria it's not even it, it's nothing close to islam it's nothing close to as the zionists what the zionists do to palestinians is nothing close to judaism you know this is something beyond this is something much, 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 much darker. Yes. yes. And, and, and this entire cancer, West and East, has been created by the, the real ruling oligarchy in the West. We should, the most people forget that torture is, let's say, we have this real structure of t torture since the Spanish Inquisition. Mm -hmm. 
and the Western secret services were taught by this knowledge. And it doesn't matter where it comes from, it doesn't matter what kind of phase it has, it has everywhere the same phase. Yeah. There's and, a very... Um, Sorry, go on. Yeah, and, and this is something what the people don't understand. As you, as you said, they, in the Western world, it's all about effectiveness. It has nothing to do anymore with standards and with morality. Mm. As you said, that the Ukrainians, they, they, they park the tanks directly to a kindergarten. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm. and for this reason, the Russians didn't attack. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and what you said about Russia, um, I was very pleased to hear this because I'm very well connected to them and, uh, and I had the same information what you said. Mm. And um, it's all about, and um, Oliver Stone had a wonderful quote. He said, since the 1960s, the USA does not accept any sovereignty of a country anymore. No, yeah, exactly. And, and they want to get, for example, now if we go to Russia, they want to get Russia's uh, commodities. Hmm. And the target is to put the Ukraine war as long as possible yeah. in order to start an inner revolution in Russia to mm -hmm. implement a regime what they would, yeah. to which they have a connection. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Have a to, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you go back to, if you go back to Brzezinski and the Grand Chessboard, of course, that was made perfectly clear that the balkanization of Russia, the weakening of Russia, the window of opportunity, which in my view closed with Syria, because when Russia intervened in Syria in 2015, I think at that point the West thought, uh-oh, <laughs> like we've lost it. We've lost that window of opportunity. And that's why it, it became for them. And, and 2015, remember, is the year after the regime change in Ukraine. So they saw what was coming. In 2018, there was a leaked diplomatic exchange, email exchange, between UK diplomats and American sort of think tankers and diplomats, where they actually spoke about the importance of, of disconnecting Russia from Syria. And that's what I'm saying. From 46 onwards, this was their MO. This is what they wanted to do. Britain even more than the US, by the way. The UK, in my opinion, has an even deeper hatred of Russia than, than the US. The US is all about economy, commodities, power, supremacy. But the UK has a visceral <laughs> um, hatred of Russia. And I'm yes. not even, I, right? Yes. Um, this is something I'm just, you know, I'm feeling. A few people have told me this also, and I can see it. Um, in the British policy. It, it's actually much more savage than um, the US policy. I don't know if you remember in 2017, Trump was talking about withdrawing from Syria. 
And almost immediately, the UK media went on the offensive against Trump. And literally two days later, the White Helmets um, conducted the Han Shehun chemical attack. And Trump had to come back in. So, you know, Britain, Britain is, um, in my view, the intelligence behind what is going on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, this is very interesting because um, in the book uh, of Eric John Phelps, he, wrote, he is the author of the book Vatican Assassins. Mm. He explains very interestingly <laughs> the uh, situation of the Vatican and the Jesuits. And the most, the biggest enemy of the Jesuits is the Orthodox Church. Mm. And the interesting thing is, I think, I heard it correctly, that in 2014, when there was the annexation of the Krim, Putin put also the Orthodox Church in power again. Mm. Yeah, and, and uh, we had in our last discussion with Stanislav Bogdanov from St. Petersburg, Russia, we had this conversation that he said, Germany has to be destroyed because this is another subject of this Ukrainian war. Yeah. to destroy Germany, first of all, by destruction <laughs> of the pipelines, and secondly, by delivering, because we are one of the one of the countries, few countries, who deliver real weapons to Ukraine. So there is, so our government risks that we have go on war with Russia, mm. and that there is the possibility that Germany will be destroyed, it will be splitted. And in that moment, the European Union will dry up because they won't have money. Mm. And then the UK, with its all, uh, with its big network, because the the UK has no commodities, it has yeah. no technology, <clears throat> but it has network. Mm. And, it has the city of London. <laughs> and it has the city of London. And in yeah. that moment, they can try to to implement the new cluster. Mm -hmm. And this cluster of the new society will be managed by UK. Mm. Yeah, Global Britain, if you remember, Theresa May uh, renamed, what well, she, she created the nomenclature of Global Britain. That came in under Theresa May. Oh. Yeah. This is very interesting. Yeah. This is... And I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Theresa May. It may have started with David Cameron, but it was around this time that Global Britain became there because I picked up on it back then. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, yeah, this, uh, then everything makes sense. <laughs> then, yeah. because uh, uh, there's Lord Ismay, the first mm -hmm. NATO general, uh, sec uh, the NATO first NATO secretary. Uh, he said he made a very interesting quote which you can uh, read on the website of the nato they said he said the nato was established for hold or for hold the us in usa in the soviet union out and the germans down wow and <laughs> with north stream one and north stream two mm. germany would not becoming dependent from russia but it would have become independent from the NATO, mm. and we and uh, we would have a lot of, let's say, uh, the the exchange of resources and technology 
would have established a joint venture in, uh, uh, between Europe and Russia, which was incompatible. Mm. And by this, and by the destruction of the pipeline and by the politics they do right now, Euro uh, Russia will never be interested in Europe again. And they have to work with the US. They have to, although they don't want to. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I think this is also a part of Ukraine. Ukraine is a, is, is a war which is an economical war also against Europe. Yes, for sure. I mean, Biden even made that quite clear in one of his less confused speeches, I think, fairly early on in the conflict. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he effectively said the effects will be felt in, in Europe. And there was actually there was actually a supposed leaked RAND document which revealed that the war was very much against Germany in particular by the UK and the US on an economic level. Oh wow, the Iranian Iranian newspaper are very good. Yes. <laughs> this, 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 this yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah, this is um because there's another uh, do you know Alex Craner? No. Uh, you should have him on because he's really we're, interesting about the war against Germany that's going on. We're going to have him. We're going to have him next week. Ah, oh, great. Fantastic. I love him. He's great. Thank Ask you. him about the American, uh, the American UK relationship because he has a great analysis. How are you, are you also familiar with Tim Kirby? We're going to um, have yeah, him next week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's based in Russia, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So we're going to have him. Yeah, good. I have one last question. Uh, maybe it's a big one, but uh, one last question. <laughs> Do you have an idea what the role is of China in this game? Because the situation <laughs> is in Europe, in Canada, in USA, the, the, the governmental technology of China with face recognition, social, uh, social scoring, etc., is implemented in the whole yeah. Western world. And and sometimes I think China is behind all that, but uh, honestly, then there are some information <laughs> that I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. I must admit, I don't yeah. get it. Do you have any clue about that? I'm, I, I'm also kind of finding my way around China and Chinese policy. We were talking fairly early on about, you know, I, I've been trying for months to understand Chinese policy, for example, in Yemen, because... Mm -hmm. They're effectively empowering the Saudi coalition, which includes UAE and Israel, to to genocide the Yemeni people through starvation, deliberate starvation, UN-supported starvation, just as they supported it um, in Iraq previously, um, and looting Yemeni oil at below market prices that they're paying to the Sauds, not to um, the Yemenis, to the to the constitutionally elected Yemeni government, the, the National Salvation Government. So they're stealing from Yemeni people effectively. I have a friend, Professor Issa Blumi, who's just come back from the Horn of Africa and, and various other countries, and, and he um, he's not very complimentary about how China is effectively imprinting itself into these communities, into these cultures, into these commodities, and into these resources, right? 
then on the other hand, I have people who will extol the virtues of China and the Belt and Road Initiative and, and the investment into infrastructure in countries that they're partnering. Syria has a high opinion of China. China, I mean, from the very beginning here, China has vetoed any attempt by the US to uh, intervene militarily directly in Syria. So it has, its embassy has remained open here in Damascus. There are trade deals ongoing, but of course, many of them can't be published because of the Caesar Act, because now the Caesar Act means that anyone that comes to partner Syria can also be sanctioned underneath the completely illegal Caesar Act mandate, which was created by the United States on a, on a completely spurious charge of um, the Caesar files against the Syrian government. So I'm still, the jury's still out for me on China. I have Russian friends here who are very cautious about going too far in the relationship with That's correct. China. Yeah. That's correct. Um, I... I... I uh, made. Uh, I said that um, to to friends of mine mm. that I am of the opinion that Russia, that the real the real enemy of Russia is not USA. The real enemy of Russia is China, and they confirmed it to me. Mm. The interesting part of of China is okay. I think Syria is a specific is a different war because it's protected by Russia and China. Mm would never start a war with Russia because the technology of Russia is very advanced. Yeah. And Syria is protected by Russia, more or less. Mm. Yeah. Yemen, not. And Yemen is also, the interesting thing about Yemen is the geographic point mm -hmm. in the aviation industry because all the all the airplanes goes over Yemen. Yeah. And th so this is a very critical point. Who wants to control, who control, the one who controls Yemen controls also the the aviation industry, more or less. Right. It, it also, yeah, it also gives you influence over Iran because you, you've got yes. the Straits of Hormuz here. You've yes. got the Bab al-Mandeb Straits. You've got gas resources there. You've got the Horn of Africa. Yeah. You know, Yemen is the bridge, really, to Africa, largely. Yes. And you've got, really, again, huge resources in Yemen, right? Both agricultural, from, from every perspective, environmental, for Saudi Arabia, water. You know, I mean, everyone sort of forgets water in the whole discussion. But I mean, that's one of the reasons that Israel occupies the, the Golan territories. They take 30% of their water supply from Golan. Oh, it is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It is another norm. Wow. Yeah. So it's not only oil, you know, it's, it's also because water is going to become one of the most precious commodities. You know, it's being privatized and nationalized. Oh, sorry, privatized. Largely, yes. you know, we're being deprived of of drinking water, which is just insane. The fact that we have to buy mineral water in bottles is just yeah, it's the same, crazy. <laughs> it's the same in Germany. Yeah. We had a lot of uh, lakes which were mm. private, and many lakes are bought by the Chinese right now. Oh wow! Yes, in Germany, and this is, but at the moment there are nothing. It's the same. Everything is hidden. Yeah, no one thinks about mm. that. Yeah, yeah um, no, they are buying up. They're buying up huge, vast swathes of environment, whether yes. it's woodland, waterland, and nobody's really paying much attention to that. 
And as I said before, it's, it's very difficult to get a sensible debate on China. <laughs> you know, people it's, are it's either... It's really impossible because... The, yeah. I, I had a very interesting... I saw a very interesting video in which it was said that the CDC director went to China's army mm. and, the, and the Pfizer sold a conflict factory to China in which the mRNA molecules mm. are produced. Yeah. So it's uh, it's uh, sometimes some sometimes we get the impression that China is behind it because we take the the technology, the governmental technology on the governmental system, which is established in China, is will be implemented in whole in the whole world. Mm. And um, for example, in Karlsruhe in Germany, we have already face recognition like in China. Yeah. The German, uh, the German University Munich is specialized on social scoring, mm -hmm. and it, and it comes, and it comes not only here; it comes everywhere. It's, but not in Russia. Mm. But on the other yes. hand, we have to be, yeah. It's uh, uh, <laughs> talk a lot. <laughs> well, <laughs> Russia. I think where I take my optimism from in in Russia is when I was there, for example. I saw the absolute opposite because there is this big argument. Russia is part of the WEF cartel. It's part of Davos. It's part of the, the Great Reset, et cetera, et cetera. But what I saw in Russia was investment in civilian infrastructure, investment in industry, investment in, in house building and house buying, and in other words, expanding the population and the population's ability to take care of itself, right? Which yes. is exactly the opposite to what you're seeing pretty much in all of the West, right? It, uh, they are doing advertisements in Russia yeah. that they are going to implement or that they are establishing um, cities for, yeah. for the foreign people and they expect yeah. that millions will come to Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So, well, even yeah. when I was there and, I, I mean, you know, this... Um, Because all of the observers, there were 130-odd observers of the referendum in Donbass. And, of course, we all came under attack. And, actually, I was told when I was leaving, look, if you, if you need asylum, you have it. Yeah. You know, extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the West would never, ever. I mean, the West just abandons its allies as fast yes. as it can when it doesn't need them anymore, right? It just discards them. Yeah, it's a, it's only interest. It's yeah. no sovereignty, only interest. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And this is, yeah. and uh, the, no, the Russians are completely different from the culture. And um, mm. I had a very interesting uh, conversation yesterday with a friend of mine in UK. Mm. And he found, he he saw that many Albanians came as, re yes. are coming as refugees to yep. UK. Yeah. And he asked, and he said, why? And mm -hmm. um, then I told him... Men, that, they're all men, actually. Because yes. There's more than, yeah, yeah. And now, and, and the situation is this, that the Russians had the idea, if they would have won Ukraine, to go for Albania. Mm. Because the situation is the, the ex-Yugoslavia, Serbia. Yeah. Serbia was targeted by the West, by the NATO, and Serbia was an ally of mm -hmm. the Russians. 
It still is. The people. It still is. And the problem was that sir, that Russia was such in a was such in a, a difficult situation that they couldn't support Serbia. Yeah. And Serbia was um, very angry about that. And the Russians don't forget, and they know who was responsible for it. Mm. And for this reason, there is the possibility, maybe, I don't know, I don't have any evidence for that, that mm. um, Albania tries to protect itself. Yeah, that's interesting. Because it's more than, because a friend sent me something today, more than 200 Albanian men have been homed in a, it's a, it's a sort of a herit UNESCO heritage spot. So the locals are up in arms because it's a tiny village. 200 Albanian men have just arrived to be housed there. And, and that's not the only area. I think there's another place in Wales. I think it's Wales. But yeah, it was strange. That it, yeah, it's strange because yeah. why, Albania, why refugees from Albania? Hmm. Yeah, th 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 yeah because no there's nothing going on there right now. There's nothing going on there. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. So it must be have a purpose which we, do, which we shall not understand. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, there is an extremist element in Albania, obviously, because, you know, the KLA, etc., the Albanian warlords, the, the organ trafficking during the Yugoslav war, etc. Yes. Okay. Hmm. Oh, this is, I didn't know. Interesting. Yeah. No, thank you so much for. Uh, I could. Uh, I, I would yeah, like to talk can. about the uh, Biden talking, but we don't. Then it will, uh, it will destroy the time. Thank you so yeah. much, and a pleasure to raise. Oh, thank you so much, everyone. Vanessa, just briefly, because the mm -hmm. what's the highlight for what's happening in Kherson, and also about the did they did Russian army really withdraw from? you know and some territories and is that strategic and i guess at the end i'd like to remember the sun Tzu in the art of war that says he who knows when to fight and when one cannot fight will be victorious so what's your thought on that <laughs> well i think the thing is that you know we see a lot of emotional reaction on social media and from people that are following this conflict but they kind of forget that this is what happens in war. You know, that, that there are strategic withdrawals, there are strategic advances, there are strategic uh, ceasefires, there are strategic hiatus when nobody really does anything. But I think, you know, winter is coming. Russia has managed to evacuate a huge number of civilians, I think over 115,000 from Kherson. And there was the threat of the destruction, or I can't remember the name of the dam, which would release huge amounts of water and effectively make Kherson impossible to defend. It would have been completely cut off from supply and so on. And as I said, with winter coming, you know, the, they, they can't afford to maroon their military in a situation where they can be picked off by Ukraine. So I think it's a strategic military decision to withdraw to the other bank of the river and of course, what does that do? That means that the only way Ukraine can advance is across the river, which makes them sitting ducks for the for the Russian troops. They can pick them off. So so then we reach a stalemate. You know, politically and from a media perspective, of course, it's not easy for them because 
you know, it's it's going to be. I've already seen victory parades in Kherson of of the Ukrainian um, nationalists, etc. And of course, you know, you, you have what's his name, Rishi Sunak, treating it like a victory for Ukraine and talking about the supply of more weapons, more equipment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think that's all it is. It's a it's a media victory for them, but it's a hollow victory because what it does is it gives Russia the opportunity to really entrench for the winter, to build its defenses, to protect the effectively the protectorates that is now under its uh, wing in Donetsk and Lugansk and Zaporizhia, and prepare itself for the next offensive. And I don't think. You know, a lot of people are making a big thing of Russia is talking to Washington. I don't believe this either. You know, Russia is preparing itself for the next stage of its offensive and the next stage of its military operation. And as I said, you know, it's taking into account everything. And that's what people forget. They forget that war is about strategy. It's not about the shock and awe that we have seen for decades from the U.S., it's not about this. It's not about, you, you know, Russia's whole psyche is much deeper than anything that the West can comprehend, to be quite honest. You know, and, and I think that's what we should always remember when, when Russia make, takes a decision that perhaps we in the West don't understand because we're used to being governed by what the media says. Thank you. Please, if to all of you who view this, listen to this, please, whatever resonates to you, please share it to members of your family and friends so that they could get real better, you know, alternative information so that uh, they, we could all practice our discernment, okay? And as uh, Vanessa said, do your own diligence and really create your own decision on which one to believe and which one to follow. And that will help you make decisions even for your personal life. So thank you. Vanessa, anything more you wanted to share and that you wanted the audience to know of, of your work and, and others? No, I, I think just follow your own instincts. You know, we've been gaslighted for so many years to not trust our own instincts, to not trust our own intuition, to not trust our own rational understanding of a situation. We've been, all of us, in a victim-abuser relationship with the state, with the media, with all of the associated agencies. And I think, you know, this is an opportunity to, to break out of that very destructive relationship and rediscover your own power, your own ability to rationalize and, and to analyze and to come to your own conclusions. Respect and gratitude to you, Vanessa, and to all your comrades. You mentioned earlier, you take care <laughs> of yourself, you know, so stay, you. Stay, stay alive. Hi, all and all of you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye.